All right, open your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 7. The Song of Solomon, chapter 7. And uh, it, there could be various titles, you know. I, the one in my own Bible, it says Expressions of Praise. Um, I, I, I entitled it Words That Say Something. But again, as, as you go through it, you can you know, come up with you know, many titles. But again, words that mean something. Uh, again, it's uh, chapter 7 in the Songs of Solomon. Now, this, this, this section describes the maturing of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon's marriage. It speaks of the growth in their love to each other. And, and, it, and it's shown in two ways. First of all, the descriptions in these verses are much bolder. That is, they're much more intimate than the descriptions that the lover used on their wedding night in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Such growth in sexual freedom is a normal part of a healthy, maturing marriage. And secondly, the closing nature of the exhortation in chapter 7, verse 10, also speaks of this maturing. Now, in marriage, many times there are a lot of complaints about intimacy. They're very common in marriage, especially in marriage counseling. You know, men complain there's not enough intimacy, and the women complain it's not exciting enough. Once again, <clears throat> we're back in the intimacy of Mr. and Mrs. Solomon's bedroom, the Holy of Holies for a husband and wife, where they can experience each other, you know, in the freedom that God has given them in marriage. Now, we were there the first time on their honeymoon night in chapter 4. And now here we are again in chapter 7. And this chapter creatively, imaginatively describes their lovemaking, but, but in very clear words. And when you compare both of their sexual encounters, if you will, in chapter 4 and then here in chapter 7, you can see that their, their sexual uh, time together, their sexual enemy, isn't lacking, nor is it dull. It's alive. It's passionate, it's getting better, and it's growing in maturity, which should happen, you know, in, 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 a, in a biblical marriage. And like a lot of other subjects, there are a lot of books that discuss sexual problems in marriage. But none of them can give better counsel than you find in the book here in the Song of Solomon. This is, it, it's a guidebook on sex that beats all worldly viewpoints on how a man and a woman, you know, should come together in, in their intimate time. Why? Because it's God's own viewpoint. Therefore, it's holy. It's right. And in many marriages, time seems to slowly but surely wear away communication, affection, sensitivity, excitement, thoughtfulness, spontaneity that results in the death of intimacy. You can recognize these couples many times when you, you go out and like at dinner. You know, they often sit there quietly. You know, they're staring into space. Not, not much interaction. And many, many marriages, they start off on fire, passionately. And then just as often, they fizzle out, kind of like a 4th of July sparkler. And they become nothing more than, than roommates. 
But it doesn't have, that doesn't have to happen. You know, you don't have to lose the romance. But still, the fiery passion and all displays of tender giving seem to disappear. And then we just accept that as normal. And we fall for the worldly view that it is normal. That's just the way it is. But you see, that's not the way it has to be. And I remember back in 1973, before I had married Kathy, we were engaged and we were going to get married. And, you know, I remember telling one of the guys that I worked with, an older man, I told him, hey, you know, I'm going to get married. And I expect, oh, congratulations, I'm glad to hear that, and, you know, best wishes. He goes, why do you want to do that? And, he, and it stunned me. And before I could even answer, he, he, he says, it gets old real fast. I wasn't quite sure what he meant by it. But nonetheless, I could see he was very negative about marriage. And he was on his second marriage, and that later on I can understand why. But marriage is, is what you make of it. Some couples stay married, and I, again, I've heard this over the years, and especially when I did more marriage counseling, that they're staying married for the convenience of it. Oh, I'm too old now to be on my own. Or, for some of the younger folks, the couples, I'm in it for the kids. And as soon as they're grown up and they're gone, so am I. And they just bite the bullet and go on. And some couples pour their whole lives into their family, into their children, which that's fine. But again, it's also important that you, you keep that relationship, that that's the main focus. You know, and, and, and instead of focusing attention on each other, they made their focus something else. You know, and, and when the kids are gone and, they're, and they're, it's just the two of them, you know, it's like living with a stranger. And they lost the basic meaning of what it meant to be companions. Again, instead of focusing their attention on each other, they made their focus something else. They stopped turning to each other. And they turned to other things. They, didn't, they, they just didn't bother to keep the fire burning and then, you know, until it finally went out. Now, does, does marriage have to deteriorate to such a sad situation? No. No. God has a much different desire for marriage. In His plan, the romance is to continue all through the marriage. It actually, uh, it actually builds and grows into an exciting, loving, and passionate marriage that's even more wonderful in the later years than in the beginning. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Paul said this, May the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow more and more. And I'm reading that from the, the, great, the, the Good News translation. May the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow more and more. A marriage that cools off and grows cold and stale isn't biblical. When somebody says that's just the way it is, that's a worldly outlook. And it doesn't matter who, say it, who says it, but don't believe it and fight against it. Solomon and his wife seem to have found the secret of how to keep the romance alive. Let's begin now in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And Solomon is the one who starts the dialogue here. He starts the conversation. 
He says in verse 1 and 2, How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O prince's daughter! The curves of your thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a skillful workman. Your navel is a rounded goblet. It lacks no, it, it lacks no blended beverage. Your waist is a heap of wheat set about with lilies. Solomon praises the beauty of his wife. In the eyes of Solomon, the one that he loves has a beauty that, man, that exceeds all others. It far exceeds what others might see. The, fra- the words, O prince's daughter, even though she was of common birth, we saw that back in chapter 1, verse 2, the Shulamite has royal beauty, like a prince's daughter, displayed in all the, all the majesty and the, and the, and the, the glory of, 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 of royalty. He says, the curves of your thighs. Now, in the Hebrew, this wording suggests not only her form, but she moves gracefully. And it talked about that in chapter 6, verse 13, about her dancing. Obviously, they were back now in their, their, their bedroom, in their, their, in their holy of holies. And in Tommy Nelson's book, The Book of Romance, he gives some great insights about this passage. He points out that on their honeymoon night, Solomon started you know, his praise of love by starting at the top of her head, back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now here in chapter, uh, uh, there in chapter 4, I'm sorry, he first compliments her eyes, her hair, her smile, her flushed cheeks. Now here, at a more uh, mature stage in their marriage, he starts with her feet. Now, he may have been on his knees taking off her sandals because... As you know, and we've mentioned before in, our, in, a, in various studies, in Bible times, it was the custom for a servant to take off the shoes of the master or mistress of the home and then wash the person's feet. And if that's what's going on here, Solomon was serving his wife just like a servant would have done. And Paul said in Galatians 5.13, Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. And again, that's from the New Living Translation. Tommy Nelson points out another thing related to the sandals. Sandals were worn by those who were trusted to leave the house or the palace. Slaves and women in the harem, they were kept barefoot. But Solomon totally trusted his wife to come and go from his presence. He didn't control her. He didn't restrict her. He didn't have her on a short leash. He had faith in her. He had faith in her that she would carry herself in an honorable way when she was out and about and that she'd come back to him. Solomon trusted her to go places without him because he knew that he could trust her to be faithful to him and that she wouldn't do anything to embarrass him. Solomon said in Proverbs 31, 11, and 12, The heart of her husband safely trusts her so that he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. And I've seen this many times too. An over-controlling husband is a man who doesn't trust his wife. A lack of trust is demeaning and dishonoring to her. Solomon's wife was totally trustworthy and honorable. She carried herself with respect, self-respect, grace, and a classiness wherever she went. And she reflected well her devotion to her husband. She was the, 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 the kind of wife that Peter mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-5. through 5. 
And again, in the New Living Translation, Peter said, don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, that is, the inner personality, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, the inner attitude, which is so precious to God. Notice which is, what is so precious to God. It's that gentle and quiet spirit. Now, many times when, when you hear all oh, that, 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 that gentle and quiet spirit, you know, a lot of times the ladies think, well, you know, it, it, it makes me sound like a, little, a doormat or, or, you know, a little mouse. I don't have any, and it's not. It's, it's, it's dignity under control. That's what it is. It is that beauty and that dignity that's under control, which God says is precious to him. Then Peter goes on to say, this is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted God and accepted the authority of their husbands, or again, in submission to their husbands. Now, in calling her a prince's daughter in verse 1, Solomon was saying that he was proud of her. She was his crown, and she showed his worth. Proverbs 12:4, Solomon wrote, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who causes shame is like rottenness to his bones. And so... This is an example. There's examples to the husbands and the wives, and I wish more husbands were here tonight. But ladies, Solomon's in the Scripture is, is, be to your husband the kind of woman that Solomon's wife was to him, and make your husband proud of you in all that you do. And husbands, be the kind of man to your wife that Solomon was to his wife, and be willing to serve her and honor her, as 1 Peter 3 says, giving honor to the wife. So her feet weren't all that Solomon appreciated as mentioned here in verse 1 and 2. Notice that Solomon also compliments his wife's body. And it's true that over the years, our bodies change. And this is a husband and wife both. Our bodies change. You know, and we may not be the person we were when we first got married. But here's the thing. It shouldn't change anything. It shouldn't change anything. And men, notice how Solomon focused totally on the positive. He never named one flaw in his wife. He praised her good qualities. And he told her about them. He was basically telling her, you know what? It doesn't matter that any, what anybody else sees. He says, because to, you, to, to me, you're perfect in my eyes and you're still exciting. He didn't just compliment her body, he complimented her strength too. And that's what's meant here in verse 5 when it speaks about her thighs in verse 1. He, he says uh, uh, there in verse 5, he mentions her thighs. Uh, the, curves, the curves of your thighs are like jewels. Uh, the thighs are speaking of the upper legs. And the upper legs are symbolic for unwavering loyalty and strength. His wife was strong in character. That's what he's pointing out here. His wife had inner strength and outer beauty as well. She didn't crumble or fall apart when things got tough or during a crisis. She didn't have outbursts of anger. She didn't get uptight or get mean or short-tempered when things didn't go her way. She endured to the end. She endured to the end and she was faithful to her husband no matter what happened because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13:8, love never fails. It never fails. That's agape love. Just as when, 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 when we fail, when we mess up, God's love doesn't stop. You know, we may, we may err more than once. We may just, you know, have a difficulty in something. But, you know, it, it, love is, is never, again, it never fails. 
It's, you know, our, our failure isn't final. And thank God for that because, you know, as, as many times as we fail, God would say, hey, I'm done. But no, He continues to love in spite of my failures. So again, love never fails. Now in verses 3 through 9a, let's go ahead and read verses uh, 3 through 9a. Solomon says, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower, your eyes like the pools in Heshbon, by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of, of Lebanon. And that sounds kind of, you know, your nose is like a tower of Babylon. We'll explain that as we get further on here, which looks down, to, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel, and the hair of your head is like purple. A king is held captive by your tresses. How fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree, and your breasts like its clusters. And I said, I will go up to the palm tree, and I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the root of your mouth like the best wine. In verses 1 through the first part of verse 9, Solomon tells his wife everything that was in his heart about her. And in the things that he said was an important message to her. There was a message in what he was saying to her. You see, he recognized in his wife the very same qualities that he most respected and wanted to have in his life. And he wanted to be the same kind of person he saw in his wife. He wanted to be strong. He wanted to be noble. He wanted to be fruitful, youthful, generous, alert, righteous, and distinguished. And Solomon knew that she enriched his life. That she blessed his life. That she made his life better and that she made him a better person. Now verse, notice verses 7 and 8 again. Look what it says. This stature of yours, like a, uh, this stature of yours is like a palm tree. And your breasts like uh, your your breasts like its clusters. I said, I will go up to the palm tree and I will take hold of its branches. Now let your breasts be like clusters of of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples. Verses seven through eight is a sexual image that's based on the pollination of palm trees. When he says, I will go up to the trees, it's talking about climbing up to the uh, up to the top of the palm tree. To fertilize a male, a female palm tree, the gardener climbs the male tree and he takes some of its flowers. And then he climbs the female tree and he ties the pollen-bearing flowers among its branches. Now look at first, uh, the second part of verse 9. And now the Shulamite, Solomon's wife, responds to what he has just said in verses 1 through 9a. Notice what she says. She says... Um, she says, uh, the wine goes down smoothly for my beloved, moving gently the lips of sleepers. Here the Shulamite gives her romantic response to what Solomon had just said to her. It gives the picture of two people overcome by wine, but not in a drunken state, but the wine of passion and love. In other words, the romance is still alive. Verse 10. She says, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. The word desire is used three times in the Bible. Here it, cl it clearly means sexual longing. That is, she was glad that her husband was still attracted to her and that he still wanted her even though they've been married for a while now. And this is what keeps the romance alive. 
Because he's still in love with her. And he's told her that he is. And he treats her like, like he's in love with her. And he still wants to be with her. He's still attracted to her. Notice she's responding to this. Look at now at verses 11 through 12a. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded. She was familiar with the surroundings, but especially the vineyards. She says, Come on, honey, let's go spend some time together. She says, Wherever you go, I'm going. I want to be with you wherever you go and whatever you, whatever you do. He said their love life was so, was so alive. She still wanted to be with her husband more than she wanted to be with anybody else or anywhere else. She loved being with him. Because being with him, you see, wasn't, wasn't a boring thing. It wasn't a burden to her. It was a joy to be with her husband. And she was willing to go where he wanted to go and to work by his side wherever she could. She wanted to be involved in whatever he was doing wherever possible. Now the second part of verse 12 through 13. She says, Let us see if the vine has budded, whether the the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance and at our gates are pleasant fruits. All manner, new and old, notice, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. Now mandrakes and pleasant fruits refer to aphrodisiacs in Genesis chapter 30 verse 14. In the ancient East, uh, the ancient Near East, uh, they viewed uh, the mandrakes and the pleasant fruits as an aphrodisiac, all right, a fertility drug. And it's often called uh, the love apple or the devil's apple. Notice how she responded to her, her husband's romantic words and his actions. She responded with a strong desire to make love to her husband. Not only did she want to make love to her husband, but she had some pleasures laid up for him. And notice when it says there, both new and old I have laid up for you. And this is again what keeps romance and marriage exciting. Being creative in your intimacy. She had some surprises for him. And remember, she's, she's responding to what her husband said and did. Now when you look at the first nine and a half verses, notice who's speaking. Solomon. Nine and a half verses, Solomon is the one speaking. He's initiating. The last four and a half verses are his wife responding to him, again, to the things that he said to her. And again, this is a lesson for us men to learn from Solomon. To tell your wife how important she is, how beautiful she is, how important she is in your eyes, and, and, and serve her like Solomon did, symbolized by the removing of her sandals. And then ladies, learn from the lesson from Solomon's wife to be creative in that, in that intimate time. And again, and to not let that intimate time, that holy time, become boring be, and for it to be creative so that you know, both, both partners know what the other enjoys, so bless each other. That's what we see here in Solomon and his wife. And, and guys, we are to take the lead uh, as we see Solomon doing in the romance. And again looking at who started off this whole sequence of events. It was Solomon, you know. And, and over the years, I'd, I'd hear one of those, that complaint several times that, well, my husband's not, not romantic. You know, he's, and the guy was, yeah, I'm just not that kind of guy. Well, there had to be something 
romantic. You had some potential or she wouldn't have married you. You know, and, and not to use the excuse, well, that's not me. That's just not the way I am. And it's amazing how quick guys can get romantic when their wife leaves, when they've left them. Flowers, cards, gifts, invitations to go here and there. All of a sudden they become very creative, very romantic, but unfortunately sometimes it's too late. We have to watch and we have to listen. We have to learn. And we can learn and we can grow in our ability to be romantic. First Peter said in chapter 3, 7, he said, Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding. The word understanding means knowing all about her. What makes her tick? What she likes? What she doesn't like? And then to live with her based upon that understanding. And it's being spontaneous. It's being creative. And again, if, if you want creativity in those intimate times, you have to be creative before the intimate times. You know, again, um, setting time aside to go out and to do things and, and you know, and not just on, on maybe those special days of the year. You know, again, when you live in with her with understanding, it's knowing her favorite places that she likes to go, the things that she likes to do. And, and when you do that, you know, you'll be doing yourself a favor and your children as well. Because you'll give your children an example and a foundation of how important marriage relationship is. And your children will be blessed and they'll thank you for it. Romance dies when one or both partners become so hurt and disheartened and disappointed with a spouse that they become hard-hearted. Sin and harsh treatment that aren't repented of will cause the wounds of sin to remove all feeling. And we're going to talk about feeling. Romance dies when a person focuses on just the outer beauty rather than the inner beauty. Like I said, in time, that outer beauty fades. Isaiah said in chapter 40, verse 7, the flower fades. And what he means by that is, is and it was relating to the, the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. But, you know, when flowers, they're beautiful. But they don't last long, do they? The beauty of that flower fades. You know, with the heat, the wind, whatever the element might be, sooner or later that, that flower fades. I mean, you can exercise, you can eat right, you can have all the plastic surgery and facelifts, tummy tucks, whatever, you know, but, but it's, sooner, it's, gravity's going to take its effect. Time's going to have its effect on us. It's, it's merciless. It, it's going to have its own way. Romance dies when couples forget how priceless their spouses are. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So often, we just take each other for granted. And we forget just how special they are to us. And for, for romance to grow, you need a plan. And you need to take the care. And you need to pay the attention. Take the time. And, and it needs for each person to be reminded what... What was it that brought them to the altar in the first place? And each person has to be reminded of the special qualities in their partner that attracted them when they were first going together. It's laziness that, that unfortunately seems to happen over the years. And that's what kills the excitement and the romance. 
what happens is that a couple will stop doing their best for each other. And then, you know, we, we get caught up in our work, the responsibilities at home. We get caught up in just everyday cares of the world, not making the time for the most important relationship, the husband and wife. Remember when Solomon said, or, or uh, she, um, the Shulamite said earlier, don't let these little foxes destroy the vineyard? Get rid of those foxes that destroy the vineyard. Those, those uh, Chuck Swindoll, Pastor Chuck Swindoll calls them the termites in the marriage that eat away the, the, those, the romance. You know, the, 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 the priority. Don't let these little foxes destroy the vineyard. Kill, the, because those things, that, that will kill the intimacy in your marriage. It takes discipline and it takes hard work to keep a marriage alive. Good marriages don't just happen. You make them happen. You have to be an active participant in your marriage. And here's where we get to the feeling because this is such a, a, a big thing when, when a couple stops loving one another or one of the spouses stops loving, loving the other. What if you're married and, and, and feel that you don't love your spouse anymore? And that's one of the biggest killers I heard so often. I don't have feelings for them anymore. Can your feelings change? Is that possible? Is there any hope of finding that sexual fulfillment with your spouse? There is. But here's the thing. Do you love God enough to do what you have to do to revive your love and intimacy? Way too many couples come to that place of saying, we don't love each other anymore. And when they get to that, that painful place, they just take it for granted, it's over. Like the song goes, you've lost that loving feeling. But you're depending upon a feeling. Feelings are all over the place, man. You can feel great one day and down the other and there's nothing that within that 24-hour period that's caused you to feel that way. They fluctuate. We're emotional people. But way too many couples come to that place of saying, we don't love each other anymore. And when they get to that place, they figure it's over. You know what this attitude says about them? When they say, you know, that, that it's over? It shows that the couple has made a mistake by putting their confidence in the world's idea of love. Well, if you don't have, and I've heard it too, if you don't, yeah, if you don't have any feelings for the person, the best thing to do is, is to break up. Divorce. They're putting confidence in the world's idea of what love is and suggests, it suggests that God's way of loving never existed in their marriage to begin with. Nowhere in the Bible does it show in any way that the feeling that the world calls love is to be the foundation for marriage. If your marriage is built totally on this feeling it will be characterized by changing feelings as the circumstances change in your marriage. Hey, there are a lot of things we don't feel like doing. And I think of moms, and I think when they, you know, that they have a new baby and they have to get up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning to feed them, change them, they don't feel like getting up and doing that. But they do it. Why? That's what's best for the child. Hey, how many of us, well, when I used to work, 
How many of us, when we were, when, you know, didn't want to get up on Monday morning and go to work? Or Friday, we went on a long weekend. But we did. Why? That paycheck's going to reflect. I didn't want to go in that day or two days. We do it because it's what's best for us. And we know if we, we continue to practice that kind of a thing, we don't go to work because we don't feel like it, you're not going to have a job much longer. We do so many things based on feeling, but we do a lot of things, or don't do a lot of things based on feeling, because we know it's not, it's not going to be good for me. It's the same in your marriage relationship. Sometimes they're just so, it's so hard to do some things, but we know it's best that we do them. And that's the, that's the working part. That's the working through. It's easy to walk out. It's hard to work out. The couple who assumes their marriage is over because they no longer love each other and don't have the feeling needs to know that no matter what's happened, the love of God can renew and change their marriage in every way. Renewal of love, here's, 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 here's the thing for renewing love, okay? It takes place in the will, action, feeling. Will, action, feeling. It's in that order. Notice feeling is last. Feeling comes last because the feeling of love isn't the most important part of the marriage. Agape love based on an unchanging commitment to the other person is the most important. A psychiatrist, uh, a psychiatrist M. Scott Peck calls commitment the foundation, the bedrock of any genuinely loving relationship. Renewal of love starts in your mind when you make the decision to choose to love your spouse no matter what. And never stop loving. You see, you don't lose the loving feeling. You, just, you stop loving. And your loss of love is a result of wanting to receive rather than wanting to give. And what does the Bible say? God so loved the world that He gave. No greater love does a man have than laying down his life, giving his life. Paul said in, in Ephesians 5, 23-25 uh, that, that, that Jesus uh, gave His life for the church. You know, love, love is giving. It's giving. Making the choice to love your spouse no matter what and never stop loving. This agape love that you must practice has to be learned. It starts in the mind. It says, it's subject to the mind, not the emotions, and it always results in action. When you've made up your mind that you're going to do this, it results in an action. And then when you begin to do it, guess what? The feeling comes. You see, we always pray, Lord, give me the feelings for my partner. God says, no, obey what I tell you to do, and then you get the feeling. He says, whatever you ask in keeping my commandments, you shall receive. Okay, Lord, he asked me to love. And in loving, then he gives me the feeling. That's the way God does things. That's the order. Your loss of love is, is the result of wanting to receive rather than wanting to give. This agape love that you must practice, and again, it has to be learned. It starts in the mind. It's subject to the mind and not the emotions, and it always results in action. Love becomes something that we do. It's something that we do before it becomes something we feel. So we have to choose to show and initiate love. The husband has to be 100% committed to loving his wife, 
Ephesians 5.25. And the wife has to be 100% committed to loving her husband. Ephesians 5.24. Now, how many of, of, uh, has heard that, that love is 50-50? You're only putting in half of what God's requiring. And the problem is that that math... <laughs> of each spouse is only giving half of what they should be giving. They're not contributing 100% to the marriage. You don't put in 100% because your partner does. You put in 100% because God asks you to. Because God requires you to, to do independent of what your spouse does. Remember, the opposite of love is not hate, but it's indifference, it's lack of concern. And as you give of yourself, whether it's, to, whether it's your time, your attention, your kindness, your feelings of love will grow. Ephesians 5 has instructed the husband and wife to give of themselves sacrificially to their spouse, just like Jesus, as I said a while ago, gave himself for his spouse, the church. In other words, he loved the church enough to die for her. Do you love God enough to die to yourself and live for your spouse? You see, we need to give and give generously and continue to give, you know, even as it did for Christ. It kills us, figuratively speaking. If you're not giving, then you're taking. The renewal of love starts when you choose to love and make a commitment to love followed by the actions of love that, that, that show loving concern. Then the feelings will naturally follow. So you see, feeling is the third stage in the process. In the mind, then in the actions, and then comes the feeling. And keep in mind, it's easier to change actions than it is feelings. And as your actions become noticeably different, then you'll see the desired feelings are following close behind. So in closing... Renewal of love in marriage can be the beginning, I guess, or the, the new beginning, or the, the, the launching pad, the springboard to experiencing the joys of sex. And the one flesh relationship as God planned for it in the beginning in Genesis 2, 23-25. You shall become one flesh. God has it all planned out for us. If we'll just be obedient to His Word. If we'll follow His directions. Remember, the, the, the Bible is a guidebook. A guidebook, you know, for everything. For, for, for marriage, for our finances, for raising children. Um, everything that, that we need to know, it's there. I love how God didn't leave us just here in this world and... and uh, to, to try to figure, figure out things on our own and kind of groping in the dark to, to find our way around and He just sits back and watches. He says, no. He says, I've left you my Word. I've given you my Holy Spirit. I've given you the resource of prayer in order to you, for you to do all that I've asked you to do. And it's like a, like a parent with their child. You know, I never asked my kids to do something they couldn't do. And if it was tough, I'd be there to help them do it. That's our Heavenly Father. He's always there, holding us by His righteous right hand, leading us and guiding us in His strength. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, God. We thank You so much for Your love and Your grace. 
It is an amazing love, Father. Lord, one that cannot be explained. One that, that, that dies to self and lives for others, God. As you gave of your only begotten Son because you love us so much, God. May we follow your example, Father. And Lord, help us to, Father, to take these things upon ourselves and take heed to the word for ourselves, Lord. Not to pound our spouse with it and say, you know, hey, did you read that? Did you see that? But say, Lord, help me. Show me. As the psalmist says, show me those things that are displeasing to you, God. And help me to, to do your will, God. That it might glorify you and be for my good. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.